Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. On Commons People This Week, Brexit talks are on the brink of collapse. We are not interested in the blame game. We are interested to result. Election fever grows. My concern might be that we would, if we had a gen general election, it would be a kind of quasi-referendum. And climate change is back on the agenda. My own team didn't want me to come to this event tonight because they said that there were some uncooperative crusties and protesters of all kinds uh, littering the, the road. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh and joining me this week is Paul Wall. Hi Arj. Hey Paul. We've also got Brexit expert at the UK Interchanging Europe think tank, Jill Rutter. Hello. Hi Jill. And we've got Tory peer and election guru, Lord Robert Hayward. Hi. Hi Robert. Well, the prospect of a Brexit deal is hanging by a thread following a bruising week in which negotiations have almost collapsed. It's led to a furious war of words between Britain and the EU. Let's hear Belgian MEP Guy Hofstad's take. And... All those who are not playing his game are traitors, or a collaborator, or surrenders. Well, in my opinion, dear colleagues, the real traitor is he or she who risks bringing disaster upon his country, its economy, and its citizens by pushing Britain out of the European Union. Paul, where do we go from here? <laughs> Good question. Well, as we speak, as we record this, uh, the Prime Minister and Leo Varadkar are still in talks. So th this is still a bit of a moving feast. However, all the expectations are that, um, barring some miracle Good Friday-style um, uh, surprise, and let's be honest, the Good, Friday the Good Friday Agreement had a firm deadline, and they were all in the, locked in the same room, and that's why there was progress. There is no such deadline here, thanks to the Benat. We can talk about that. Um, it, barring some miracle, it looks as though um, there will not be a deal before the European Council. Now, obviously, I think there's gonna, they're going to keep talking. The latest intel I had was that actually Michel Barnier and Stephen Barclay had moved today's meeting to tomorrow morning in the possible expectation that there could be at least some give in today's talks. Now, that's interesting. So they're keeping open lines of communication, but um, very few people on either side, let's be honest, are optimistic. But why are we here is actually a, perhaps a more relevant question. Um, and I personally think, and maybe Jill and Robert can countermand this, but I personally think it's because Boris Johnson um, didn't really prepare properly for a deal from the minute he was elected. Before he was elected, it's almost as if he just hadn't done the intellectual heavy lifting about what he needed on Brexit. There was lots of rhetoric. There's a very clear line on, on we're going to go out. But in terms of all that detailed policy work that um, has only finally emerged in the last week and a half, I mean, not even that, really. Um, it's barely a week since the Prime Minister, we forget, got up at Tory conference and then gave the EU his plans. So we haven't had much time, and I think that's going to be Varadkar's and the EU's excuse. Look, we're perfectly happy to talk about this, but we haven't got enough time. And why did the PM not come up with something earlier? Well, it goes back to the, th the Thursday after he was actually elected um, Tory leader and made Prime Minister, when he stood up in the House of Commons, July 25th, and he said, we will abolish the backstop. That, that was it. And I think from that point on, the EU just thought, whoa, 
there's no way we can really negotiate around that. That's going to be too hard. And for me, it just reminds me of the fact that when Boris was first elected in 2008 as mayor of London, he didn't, when he was running for mayor of London, he was so obsessed about winning the election against Ken Livingstone um, that he didn't do any of the heavy lifting and policy. And his first six months in office in City Hall were a disaster. And it seems to me the same again. He was so obsessed about winning the leadership election and beating Dominic Raab, getting his legs knocked off him and becoming leader, that all this stuff was almost an afterthought. And in that vacuum came Dominic Cummings. Well, I think the interesting thing about that is how much he uh, boxed himself in during the Tory leadership. He could have said he was going to win it anyway, so he didn't really need to go all out for those Brexiteer votes. They were going to go for him anyway. Um, much more election-winning candidate than Dominic Raab, who's probably his nearest competitor for that real sort of true believer vote. So he didn't need to say... I'm going to rule out a time limit. That was a place you possibly could have gone, might have been negotiable. I'm going to rule this out, rule that out or whatever. I think it's interesting is there are possibly elements that you could reassemble from what he's proposing, which, as he said, you know, could form a landing zone. We've seen some comments, I think, from Raoul Ruperol, who worked on this for Theresa May, saying, well, you do a bit here on the consent, you do this, you work this out on, uh, on customs, and then maybe you could actually, you know, edge your way towards something. But... You know, that requires quite detailed work on the Union Customs Code, all these complicated things. And I think, you know, I think people who've worked probably with Boris in government would say attention to detail, probably not the strongest <laughs> point, uh, she said. Uh, you know, and bothering to actually think that you need to fill in the detail behind the rhetoric. You know, it is always difficult for governments. All governments find the translation from campaigning to governing really difficult. I mean, you know, it's always why they fall over uh, with doing stupid things or committing to silly things in their first few months. And he's basically been thrown in a very, very, very deep end uh, with, you know, this deadline of the 31st of October looming and also pitching himself onto this do-or-die pledge. That's the other bit. He's made a deadline that didn't need to be as hard, super hard. I'd agree with bits of what both of you have said. The comparison with uh, his accession or election to the London mayorality is absolutely precise, and I don't think many people have paid that much attention to it, that the first few months were a disaster. He got rid of his chief of staff, he lost two deputy mayors um, because of their backgrounds, didn't check them carefully enough, Uh, and equally, this question of lack of preparation is key. Um, Boris doesn't do detail, we all know that, but he hadn't asked anybody else to. I'm not sure that it was the question of the choice of date of the absolute. He had in his mind that it was no deal, end of. It, it didn't really matter what any, ever anybody else said or did. And they had done no preparation to that effect. So do you think that no, that basically the thing that's pivoted him towards deal is the Ben Act? Is the Ben Act the reason why he actually says, well, if I'm going to get out of it, I've got two choices. I either do a deal or I break the law and, you know, potentially get jailed for contempt or other things like that. I mean, is that what he's uh, sort of worried about? Is that why he's pivoted towards a deal? It's been a combination of things. I think he expected to have a general election by now. He expected that to run, Mm. no problem. And he suddenly discovered that actually there are... And Dominic Cummings, if you know, behind him, is discovering that there are other people with shrewd political brains. And a combination of those factors... Uh, have resulted in us being in the position that we're in. Now, I'll give you just one small example. Uh, On August the 4th, I marched with the Taoiseach at Belfast Pride for an hour and a quarter or so because of my actions in terms of getting same-sex marriage legislation in Northern Ireland through the House of Lords. 
when I spoke on the, the Ben Act, as it now is, in the House of Lords uh, in early September, I made the point that at that point, seven weeks into the Tory administration, the Johnson administration, I had spent longer talking to the Taoiseach than any other Conservative in either House. And that is an indication of how much they had set their minds on a no deal and an election. End of. And they suddenly discovered that there are other people who can manoeuvre as well as they can. And it's not a binary choice in politics, whereas Dominic Cummings thought it was over a referendum. And therefore, there are all sorts of other issues which they've not addressed. I think that's really true. That it's Certainly Cummings and probably the Prime Minister. For them, October 31st was almost a second-order issue. It was about getting an election and fighting an election on no deal and killing the Brexit party. And October 31st was a useful sort of peg on which to hang all that. And, and then, as, as Robert says, you know, then the Ben Act comes along, that, which was forced by the prorogation. I think one of his biggest missteps was that prorogation because it's perfectly possible that people like Grieve, they were, they were holding off. Uh, they were going to do something like the Ben Act at some point, and it's a misnomer to call it the Ben Act. He certainly didn't write it, and they, yeah. um, as everyone knows, um, there were detailed <laughs> brains who were behind that. that. But, um, <laughs> but um, they were going to hold off, and I think they were going to hold off until after the European Council, and it would have been a much tighter the, window for them, and that's a big strategic misjudgment. There are a whole block of people, there is a whole block within the Tory party who the act of prorogation really angered, and I'm in that group. George Young, Lord Young of Cookham, the bastion of conservative uh, caution, non-rebellion, former leader of the House of Commons, former chief whip in the Commons, senior whip and minister in the Lords. He resigned. And there are other people like him and like myself, people who changed uh, affiliation in the Lords, and they were turned off by the aspect of prorogation. So it isn't just one action. It's a series of pretty arrogant or ill-considered actions which have got us into this unfortunate position. Now let me just ask you all, is there any way Boris Johnson, assuming he doesn't get a deal, can get around delaying Brexit? I think it's impossible. I really do. I talked to a constitutional lawyer today and it's very, very difficult to see how they can do anything other than, than send that letter. The question is who sends a letter? It might be Mark Sedwell, I guess, but it has to have the PM's imprint on it, whatever. I mean, who sends it is a bit irrelevant. Yeah, when, you're yeah. in, when you're a civil servant, you exactly. sign letters yeah, to ministers exactly. all the time. But the important thing is it's a letter from the government. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, if they just thought Mark Sedwell was doing it, you know, actually, the government's not behind this, Mark's just decided you better send the letter. That doesn't work. <laughs> <Yeah>. So <laughs> so I think that's, sort of, you know, whatever. I mean, they might get Tim Barrow to go and, you know, do the scene-setting things. He delivered the Article 50 yeah. letter. So appropriate enough that you sent him in, you know, complete with beard and stuff like that to do the optics rather than Boris go over on the Eurostar so I think we would expect to see that I mean I think the thing that captures the Prime Minister is A he's made these statements to the Scottish court saying I will obey the law uh, allegedly under duress from his law officers all saying we can't go on serving you guy if you don't say that and there is this thing that actually it's not just the sort of letter of the law it's the sort of you know the need not to be seen to frustrate the law that really gets him so the sort of idea that I can write a letter because I'm sort of you know the hostage to Hillary Benn or whoever else Paul wants as the authors of that all these other all these other clever people behind the bill yeah the idea that he's you know writing it as a hostage letter or whatever and then can write his real letter which says just ignore that thing that I've written there that's not really what I want and by the way I'm going to make your life totally miserable but it's possible that well, there's interesting things the EU may not may not want to agree the 31st of January. There's some debates going on about this idea. Should it be a very short, make-your-mind-up time extension to say, look, this just goes on and on and you only ever do things when we give you deadlines. So here's a deadline. Have a week. Decide if you're going to go to a general election or 
referendum or whatever, uh, and then you know, if not, you're out. Uh, do they give us a long time to say, you know, we don't want every European summit to be overshadowed by the British problem. So loads of other things we want to go on with in Europe. So those are all in play. What they did last time was split the difference between Merkel, who said give them till give them a year, Macron, who said give them, you know, till the end of the month, and you ended up with the 31st of October, Halloween and stuff like that. I'm slightly more hopeful about the position because Leo Varadkar has actually bothered to come across and meet today. To me, that says there is a window. It's not very wide open, and I don't think it would be achieved by October the 31st. But I don't believe he would be there unless one of two things. Either he thought that there was some slight opportunity to, to find a solution over a period beyond October the 31st, or we are actually just playing games in terms of optics and perceptions. Who is going to be blamed at the end of the day? And, and if it's the latter, then I think Leo Varadkar has played a very shrewd move. I bothered to come to you. I met you in your country, and yet we are in this position. So it's a very, very shrewd uh, play if that's what it is. Um, but... I'm of the view that if there is an extension, it has to be delivered in the name of the Prime Minister, but it doesn't matter, but that it'll be shorter rather than longer, because if I was a European leader, I'd say, look, you know, we're not playing these games forever. Yeah, and while all roads appear to be heading towards an election, uh, assuming there is a delay, there have been suggestions this week that the Tories could fight that election campaigning for a no-deal Brexit, but Damien Green, on behalf of around 50 One Nation Tories, says Johnson is reassured him that's not the plan. Let's have a listen. What we're saying now is that clearly the manifesto is in preparation and we want to make it as clear as possible that we do not want to see no deal in that manifesto. And the Prime Minister agreed with us that he didn't want to see no deal in that manifesto. So I think we can be confident that the idea that, that a government would go and, and on, into a general election saying what we want is no deal, which is the Brexit Party policy, that will not be the Conservative Party policy. Paul. First of all, are we definitely going to have an election before Christmas? It's not definite at all. Um, the Labour Party is the most interesting element in all of this because uh, there are a real mixed reviews in the Labour Party. A lot of Labour MPs at last Monday's Parliamentary Labour Party meeting, uh, from left, from right, from north, from south, from Remain, from Brexit wings, all unusually seem to agree that actually they'd rather have a referendum before a general election. Now, that sounds odd, particularly given the way the Labour Party is made up at the moment. I've been told that's been overdone by some people who really do obviously want a referendum, and there are a significant number uh, obviously want it the other way around um, and would never dream of having a second referendum. Um, but Jeremy Corbyn is the whole question, and what's he going to do? Where's his mind on all this? And that's the, that's the really interesting so thing. He said this morning that he would obviously yep. rather he have an He said he'd first. rather have an election yeah. first, but the question is then, when is the election? And... I can't for the life of me think that Jeremy Corbyn is going to try and trigger a general election before October 31st, which is what the Sun newspaper said overnight. And it's frankly ridiculous because everybody I've talked to around Jeremy Corbyn says you can't trust Boris Johnson. So even though the act kicks in formally and even though it looks completely watertight, they, the distrust is so huge, they'll think he'll pull some kind of fast one that they will not do anything before October 31st. And if that's the case, then you're looking at one date before Christmas, which is December the 12th, I think, because 
and, and then I think Merry after Halloween, we're all, we're all going to start talking about, forget Halloween Brexit, we're all going to start talking about, you know, um, bonfire night general election trigger, because it could be the 4th or 5th of November that you would then try and trigger a dissolution on the 7th, which would then follow an election on the 12th of December. Any later than the 12th of December, no party wants I mean, a Christmas there election. Is, there is a slightly nerdy point about, you know, if the EU has agreed an extension, then that's changed in EU law. The government has to, by statutory instrument, change UK law. But actually what matters is EU law. Uh, it's a bit of a mess if UK law says we're not an EU member and EU law says we are. But the thing that matters is EU law, which is still superior to UK law. So it's a sort of odd position that you could say we'll be, you know, and the, what matters for no deal is whether the EU starts treating us as a third country. That's why you get all these glitches with no deal, the customs checks at the border, the needing your pet passport to take you no know, fluffy to France and stuff like that. So you know, if the EU is treated as a member state, you actually don't have your no deal set of problems, however much we might be saying we're not turning up anymore, we're not going, things like that. We're in this sort of quasi halfway house now of not turning up to meetings. So, so you could say that actually just that decision Whenever it comes, it may not come until very near to the 31st, they decide to see how British politics plays out. Because we can ask, they don't have to agree instantly, but uh, it might, uh, you know, that could give you the trigger rather than actually having to wait for, you know, for the sort of pumpkins to kick in on the 31st and then go for it. I think there's a real difficulty there. At the moment, the Labour Party are saying we're not going to do it till at least the 31st of October. And I agree with that. I don't think the Labour Party will because there is this massive distrust of the Johnson government. But... There, are, there is an incredible number of Labour MPs who are seriously worried about their return. You talk to Tories, I, I talk to them, and they're absolutely erotic, particularly if they're in the southeast of England, um, and you've touched on the question of the, the people who are saying that we can't just have a no-deal campaign. So the Tories are desperately worried across the board. But the Labour Party are equally. I was chatting to a Labour MP the other day on the M62 corridor. He has a 20,000 majority. And he was seriously worried about his seat. The reason he's worried is not because of the Tories. He's worried about Brexit and the Brexit party. And I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday who's never voted Tory, couldn't, can't stand Boris, voted mixture of Labour and Lib Dems, but is a lever. And he told me categorically yesterday at a general election he will vote for the Brexit party. So the Labour Party are worried, both to the Brexit party, but also if you're a Labour MP and you represent Swansea West, Cardiff Central, Birmingham Edgbaston, you go through Manchester Withington, these university seats, they are in as much under as much threat as Labour MPs who've got leave constituencies. So there are a lot of politicians who might be saying, particularly on the Labour side, we want an election, but the Tories are not giving it to us at the moment because we don't trust them. But come October the 31st, I think we might get a slightly different message out of those same MPs. The question is, Robert, do you think that they... Would they be helped or hindered by a spring election, for example? Would Does that... I mean, I know it sounds ridiculous to even think that we could have a spring election, given everything that Corbyn said, and we, I want, I'm champing at the bit for an election. But there are some people in the Labour Party who say, well, if we miss that December 12th date of a general election, we're then into February, realistically. Um, how would that affect those those Labour MPs? Would they rather have a bit more time to try and recover in the polls? Or, or do they think... I mean, Go for it in December and just let's no, see they, what happens. The people I've spoken to f fall into the let's have it after Christmas category on the v basis that the more we see of a Boris Johnson government, the less the nation will like it 
and the Boris Johnson government, this is Labour, serious Labour uh, election analyst talking to me, saying, well, Boris will then be caught between a vice of the Brexit party on one side uh, and the Lib Dems in the South East on the other. And yet he won't have taken any decisions. He won't have delivered on the things he's talking about because 20,000 police don't even start arriving till autumn 2020, etc. And therefore, I, I've had serious Labour election strategists say to me, we're going to drag it out as long as possible because Boris will show himself to be what he is, and that is actually shambolic at administration. Those were the phrases that were used to me. Yeah, one, one person said to me in Labour, um, it's better to, sh to shoot now and hang them in the spring. And um, in other words, keep, keep Boris wounded over several months. So on your mayoral thesis, he gets better after six months. He had a, an electoral mandate at that point, <laughs> and, that, and that is the difference. But people do get used to I mean, it's one of the things you think when you watch Boris sort of floundering. I think he's got, actually got better in his last statement. But when you saw him initially floundering at Prime Minister's questions, which he doesn't seem to be very keen on doing, uh, hasn't, I think, taken up the invitation with the liaison committee, so they're still waiting. Uh, and you've seen his initial statement, that really sort of terrible tone he struck in that statement straight after the House was reassembled, which I think people are blaming on jet lag. I think, frankly, as Prime Minister, you've got to get used to performing with jet lag. Yeah. Uh, so that's another bit of the learning curve to get into. Is it actually, he's a very inexperienced Commons performer, and most people who are Prime Ministers are actually quite used to doing that. They still find it a bit of a shock to do Prime Minister's questions, stand up as Prime Minister with this mass audience. But he's done so little of that. I mean, being a backbencher and then foreign secretary, where you actually don't get that sort of rough and tumble, people going at you in anything like the same way. And I think, you know, he may get better at some of those sorts of things where he hasn't appeared to be very good. And he may sort out this sort of split that seems to be in number 10 between the sort of ex-vote leave people who are clearly running with one dominant agenda and the Boris for Prime Minister for more, you know, Boris is, you know, for life, not just for Christmas, sort of people under Eddie Lister who want to look and say, actually, he's about more than Brexit, he's longer term and stuff like that. And you might actually resolve how number 10 is going to work under Boris, which I think at the moment it's a very odd mix of effective but hugely dysfunctional. Yeah, and you and I have both written about this on we've both the website we've both this week. We've both written about this. We must about move on, though. Um, Extinction Rebellion protesters are back in London this week and are once again succeeding at pushing climate change up the agenda. Boris Johnson is not impressed. Let's have a listen. My own team didn't want me to come to this event tonight because they said that there were some uncooperative crusties and protesters of all kinds uh, littering the, the road. And they said there was some risk that I would be egged on my way in here. And so I immediately asked the faint hearts in my private office, what would Margaret Thatcher have done tonight? What would Maggie do? And uh, what would she have done? Would you, if, you, if she took the extraordinary risk of sending a task force halfway around the world through tumultuous seas to recapture the Falklands, I think she would have crossed Whitehall to come uh, to Banqueting Hall tonight. And frankly, Charles, wild horses would not have kept me away. Is, is Boris going to regret that comment, Paul? Uh, I'm not sure he will, in, 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 certainly in the short term. It sounded to me, it, it was a classic Boris gag. The whole thing was a, a, an extended gag and it was a tribute to his former boss, um, Charles Moore. And, you know, it was part of that whole spectator telegraph axis. So his audience, he thought, would love it. And they did love it in the hall. Obviously, that's the kind of language that Boris uses. Um, 
and obviously, uh, there's a, a more serious point, which he was trying to get across to the, the wider public, who he thinks really dislike extreme direct action. And this is a waste of time. And yeah, a lot of people have sympathy with the cause, but this is not the way to do it. So he had he was trying to, as ever with Boris, make a gag while make a serious political point. And the serious political point was, look, um, I think there is something in this, but these people are so extreme. I'm not Mr. Extreme. I'm Mr. Moderate. I'm Mr. Liberal. Um, and however, since then, um, his father's come out and said, look, I'm a crusty and he's been quite proud of it. So I'm not sure whether Boris loses too much from that, really. In the long term, I think a lot of young people will be um, a lot of young people will be really, really uh, put out by the idea that they're being dismissed. That's the more dangerous thing for Boris. If you're if you're. 18, 19, 20, and you're thinking of voting for the first time, here's another reason not to vote for Johnson. Uh, I think that's the worrying yeah. thing for As him. As you said, he's speaking to that Telegraph Spectator axis yeah. when he might need some people from outside then. But Robert, do you expect the environment to be any kind of significant issue in the upcoming election whenever it comes? If it's purely Brexit and it's Brexit dominated, <clears throat> then the answer is no. Sadly, it's on a lot of other issues will be much further down the agenda. And I speak as somebody who's actually asked a question on plastics in June in the Lords, asked a question in July on, on plastics in the Lords, asked one in September. I, I am absolutely consistent in my opposition to plastics in terms of as they pervade our society today. But I'm going to make a very personal point and extend it. On Monday... I suffer from multiple sclerosis. I almost collapsed getting out of bed. I went to the bus stop, there were no buses. I had to walk to Parliament, which was a major effort. And I couldn't get across the bridge I was aiming to. So I was supposed to walk another to another bridge, suffering from my MS. Now, I'm lucky, my MS is very mild. But at the south side of Westminster Bridge is St Thomas's Hospital. From where I come, down Peckham, Woolworth area, the vast majority of people, if they're referred to a hospital appointment, are sent to St Thomas's. The public cannot get there, however ill, however old, however immobile. There are no bus services to St Thomas's. Taxis cost money and actually can't get there properly. I challenged an Extinction Rebellion person on the fact as an MS sufferer I'd had to walk a mile and a half and would have to do so every day, each, th each way. And they said, oh. And they clearly hadn't thought of the implications for the ordinary person. And I can tell you, in my territory, in inner South London, who use South, um, St Thomas's Hospital, it's a disaster for those sorts of, for the campaigners, because they are getting a message across as arrogant, self-interested, middle-class people who don't think about the implications for people who are trying to get the, their children to school, don't, in the local place, can't get to health services and the like. And I, therefore, I don't, I think Boris's comment was typical Boris, nobody's going to react to it. But personally, I'm absolutely furious because something I believe in really strongly and have shown it by the questions I've asked in the Lords is absolutely turned off this, uh, this um, mass of people demonstrating and disrupting ordinary people, nurses, health visitors and the like who just can't get around. Um, right. Well, uh, <laughs> I think it's interesting though. It's a good point. I mean, 
I, I think the real danger there is the fact that we've now entered a modern form of protest, which means it's a rolling protest. It's somehow a, like a, a two-week holiday. Whereas the sensible thing, surely, to do is have your protest, plan it, do a major demonstration, as a lot of the, the Brexiteers do and the anti-Brexiteers do. They have a mass demonstration, have a speech, and then it's over. Um, but the difference with this is it, it, it's, it's an occupation. And so what I was surprised by this morning, finally going through Milbank, is that Milbank's been completely cleared. Parliament Square's completely cleared. There are no protesters anywhere near it. Why? Because of the security concerns over the monarch and the Queen's speech. And that was always going to happen. I'm just surprised it didn't happen quicker. If I was Extinction Rebellion, I would do a one-day protest and do it at the weekend when you're going to get a bigger turnout and less I'm, disruption. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak up a sort of a little bit in defence of their form of protest oh, while on. obviously taking into account uh, Robert's uh, terrible situation, to be honest. I've it's got close so family, you've got MS, so I know, I know what it's like. Um... The one-day protests, we've had loads and loads of one-day environmental protests that have done absolutely nothing to get climate change on the agenda. It was only after Extinction Rebellion did their first occupation this year that actually politicians started to stand up. But and the thing is, what do you make of that? I mean, I have to say, as somebody who cycles around uh, Westminster, we all think this is actually the best thing that happens to us because you can yeah. cycle around, there's no traffic, <laughs> the air quality is transformedly different and you actually think, actually, wouldn't London just be so much nicer if we could dramatically reduce central London cars? I know it's all displaced elsewhere and it's whatever, but actually, as a vision of what a car-free London could be like, it's uh, it's really quite eye-opening. But I think... The interesting thing that you say is politicians took action, and yes, they did. They voted, yeah, we'll declare it a climate emergency. That's just words. They then passed uh, through a one-and-a-half-hour debate of thing, let's have a much more ambitious uh, carbon emissions reduction. The targets are the easy bit. The really difficult bit is to get public consent to the measures you need to meet those targets, and that's where we repeatedly fail to do that. And it's not clear to me that the Extinction Rebellion people are doing the bit that really needs to be done, which is to create the political space not for the huge ambition and not to sort of frighten people rigid about, you know, if we don't do it by 2025, which guys we're not going to do, you know, we might as well not bother because we're all going to be extinct, is to actually seriously engage with what does a journey to a decarbonised economy really look like and how do we actually manage it fairly. Can I just add one final comment from from me, uh, other than the problem is for the 75-year-old person who needs a hip operation. But the great irony in my case is that I was personnel director of Coca-Cola, who introduced, and I was present, when we introduced the first ever plastic bottles in the United Kingdom through a factory in Leeds at Pudsey. And I remember talking to the shop floor workers saying how wonderful it is. I've gone through a Damascene conversion (laughs) since the (laughs) mid-1970s when I thought these things were wonderful, and I I think they're absolutely appalling. Right, we've just about got time for a quiz and Paul has to go, so we'll do it no, quickly. This week's edition is all about Queen's speeches, uh, given we've got the state opening of Parliament oh. coming up on Monday. So question number one, just just come in whenever you want. I guess the first answer wins a point. Um, if it's right. Question number one, <laughs> who does the Queen hold hostage while it, while she's in Parliament delivering the speech and why? He's a whip and he is, he's, he's got a special name. Is he at the silver, not the silver stick and waiting or something like that? He's got a very unusual title, but anyway, it's a government whip it's, who is held. I it's, mean, the deputy, it's the deputy chief whip in the Lords who is in a different title, but there's also somebody from the Commons who is also uh, held. I think there are two different people. Yeah. And, and Why? Um, I think it's it, traditionally why, yes, not actually why. It, it's it's because of one of the, yours, one of ours. It, it arises crazy. out of Charles the, Charles I's attempt to uh, arrest, so that they're hostages in effect for the Queen to be returned. They're the collateral essentially to ensure 
the monarch's safe return. I think Rob I gets think the point. In more detail. Yeah, more detail. Okay, we'll give Rob the point. Um, question number two. Penny Mordant caused a bit of a stir in 2014 by delivering an innuendo-laden opening speech in the Queen's Speech debate in the Commons. But why did she do it? Oh, for a bet? Was it a bet with was people in the in the navy? In the Correct. Met in Portsmouth or whatever, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. I can't remember exactly colleagues. what the innuendo was. Well, she was met a load She spelled out the words, basically. didn't she? Yeah. yeah. yeah and she fun. had to mention the names of uh, uh, some of the officers as that's well, it, which she got it. in. Uh, and it was a bet while she was on reservist training in Dartmouth. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> final question. Twice there have been dressed down state openings of Parliament. Why? Ooh, is the monarch the last one, there? Was, the last one was with, with the Queen in her uh, because, in her controversial um, hat. Because um, Prince Philip wasn't there, it was a question of health and age. That's um, incorrect. Yeah. Well, it's, it was last. It was the last. It was one. the last one. But it was. Is it? Because the, the, the Queen was going off to Royal Ascot almost straight isn't away. Isn't the one where? Yes. Didn't Prince Charles turn up? And, yes, that was and, the last and one. Deliver it. Um, isn't it because? It must be because the Queen's indisposed. Sort. It's because of snap elections. Right. So the the plans haven't been made, the di- Queen's diary is already yeah. filled, or various royals' diary, diaries are already filled, so the two years in which we've had dressed down state openings, 1974, 2017. Ah. Snap okay. election snap years. Snap elections. I didn't yeah. realise that. Unfortunately, that's all we've got time for this week. It's not just because of snap elections. Oh, right. No. No. Okay. This is good. Sorry, this is why they're on. I may have coincided with that, but it was not. Because there have been other snap elections when, as snappy as that, ah. actually 2017 wasn't very snap. I mean, it was... Wikipedia, you know, I'll be... Uh... So, <laughs> well, perhaps, I have to ask our recent historian who knows all these things, so... Sorry, well, we can all ask for that. I'll ask I think it's because the Queen was trying to fit it I'll very quickly Lord so she Norton. could go off to the racing. I think that may be part of it. Because scheduling that Queen's speech was a nightmare because of Ascot. Queen. Yeah, whether she was available. And I'm not sure whether my our senior whip is actually held as a hostage, so I may not even get that point. Well, I think in 10 months, of, of devising a quiz every week to finally get a question wrong. I wanted, <laughs> That's too I wanted bad. a quiz about the Rugby World Cup, not the Queen's <laughs> Oh, Robert. <laughs> Another so, time. It's the wrong podcast, I'm afraid. Uh, unfortunately, that is all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guests, and make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels so you can catch us every Thursday and get your daily dose of the latest politics news by signing up to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash war hyphen zone or follow the link in the episode notes. We'll just leave you with the thoughts of one of Boris Johnson's constituents on her local MP. <laughs> just here in Uxbridge today, um, Boris Johnson's constituency. Don't you ever mention that name in front of me, that filthy piece of toe rag. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.